Support for Unscripted comes from the Partnership for Transparency, a group of volunteer experts working to advance good governance and fight corruption in poor countries. Now more than ever, health systems face major capacity challenges in response to the COVID-19 pandemic. This makes many countries vulnerable to mismanagement and corruption as governments and aid agencies pursue ambitious programs to fight the disease. PTF's rapid response programs empower local civil society groups to monitor aid distribution, ensuring that aid efficiently reaches the people who need it most, and creating long-lasting improvements in public health systems. To learn more about PTF's work or to start a conversation about how to increase citizen engagement in your own projects, visit ptfund.org. Hi, I'm Casey Candela. And I'm Stephanie Fillion, and welcome to Unscripted. Today, inside the UN's very own medical team, how decisions regarding the headquarters in New York City have been made during the pandemic with departing medical director, Dr. Jalan Farmer. This is Unscripted, a podcast taking you inside the United Nations and beyond the scripted debates to the people at the heart of it all, the diplomats and the reporters covering them. For the coronavirus outbreak, Pass Blue has been ramping up its coverage of the pandemic's effects across the world and on diplomacy. We're keeping you up to date on everything that's happening at the UN as it tries to find a global solution to this global problem. This week, we talked to the woman who was at the heart of the UN's decision-making process early on in the crisis. Her name is Dr. Jillian Farmer, and she's from Australia. She got the job as UN Medical Director in 2012 under Secretary General Ban Ki-moon. She's responsible for the UN's internal healthcare system, which covers its personnel in New York City, but also across the globe. During her term as medical director, Dr. Farmer handled crises such as the Ebola outbreak in West Africa and Syria's chemical weapon crisis. She was planning on taking a new job in her home country, Australia, when COVID-19 was declared a pandemic in early March, hitting New York City at the same time. The UN said it was seeking a successor to Dr. Farmer and that Dr. Bernhard Lennartz, the deputy medical director, would become acting director in the meantime. But Secretary General Antonio Guterres personally asked her to stay on for a little bit longer, and she was advising him on whether and when to close the headquarters in New York. Despite all her experience with the Ebola outbreak and other crises, this pandemic hit hard close to home, putting the UN's core administrative staff at risk. During this interview, I asked her about what happened at the UN since the World Health Organization declared the coronavirus a pandemic in early March and when working and meeting physically at the UN headquarters will resume. Secretary General Guterres has already said it's unlikely the General Assembly will return as we know it in September, and some portions of the annual gathering will likely be online. I also asked Dr. Farmer about the UN's preparedness plan, especially after events in New York such as 9-11 and Hurricane Sandy that forced UN leadership to think about how the UN could continue to operate without being physically at the headquarters. 
There's approximately 13,000 people teleworking right now in the UN Secretariat alone, the core operations of the UN in New York City, led by UN Secretary General Guterres. Among UN staff, there are currently 496 confirmed cases globally and seven deaths. Stephanie, let's hear the interview about how the UN has been handling this crisis, both internally and around the world. How is your last week at the UN going? Oh, it's a mixture between crazy busy and a bit emotional and the mad rush to get last minute things done and of course all of the administrative tasks that come along with checking out from employment at the UN. So it's a lot, but we're getting there. So your last day is under 15 and when are you going back and how are you going back? I guess you're flying, but are, are there a lot of flights going back to Australia? Okay, so here is a little known fact. I actually relocated to Australia a little while ago um, for a combination of reasons. It was um, my mum suddenly got really sick and we also realised that travelling back to Australia was going to be very difficult. So I had to come because of my mum and then returning to New York became not possible. I think I was on the second last Qantas flight that left. So it was around the 22nd of March. So I've been working remotely from here, just doing the night shift effectively. So I start work at 11 o'clock local time and work through until seven or eight o'clock in the morning so that I'm fully synchronised with the teams in New York. Because everybody was working remotely, it made absolutely no difference. And it was the best that we could do with the circumstances that presented themselves. Before we go through the pandemic, I just wanted to sort of know more about the role of medical director at the UN. And also, can you give me some highlights maybe of your turn up as medical director and maybe some crises that mark your turn? Sure. It's a complicated role because it's the final single point health authority for everything related to the internal healthcare system in the UN. So it deals with all of the benefits and entitlements that are health related for staff, deals with occupational health, occupational safety, and also with the operations of the various healthcare services and facilities that are operated. Some of them operated by the UN and some of them operated by the troop contributing countries in peacekeeping or by private companies under contract and purchased services. So the role spans a big range of things medical, and the emphasis of those can shift according to what the demands and priorities of the organisation are at any one time. So it's been really very interesting. It's been a space in which some areas I started out with not much knowledge of. You might not know, but I was recruited originally from outside the UN system. So I came into the job without that insider knowledge of the UN, which was a strength and a weakness in that I had a lot to learn, but it also meant I didn't have a preconceived notion of what it could be. And um, my team and I, and I use the plural we a lot because so much of what I do is a team effort. I'm sort of the spokesperson for a group of really focused and energetic and dedicated professionals who sit behind me as the sort of the spokesperson for the group. So the job um, is very diverse. In terms of the challenges, obviously learning the system was one of the big challenges, understanding the complexities of it and then translating the things that I knew 
as sort of a technical healthcare management expert, translating and adapting that to the realities of the UN operating environment, understanding when to be flexible about things, but when to insist on other things was another key part of the learning. And looking for ways to really leverage the UN's strengths, because the UN has some significant strengths that are not necessarily apparent from the outside, but one of the things that I've come to really love is the diversity of the UN and having people from different backgrounds and different cultures sort of all circle a problem and look at it from different sides and come up with different ways of solving it and being able to distill that into something that really works in our very challenging environment. That's been the magic that's been such a privilege to work with in my team and in this environment. Specific challenges, um, I think the first really big challenge was the West African Ebola outbreak. That hit in 2014. I'd been in the job for, I think, around 18 months when it really started to heat up. We had early information that allowed us to recognise what was going on because we had a number of doctors on the ground in West Africa. So my team did a lot of work around preparedness, but it was just the enormity of the task of mobilising personnel into the outbreak and helping to keep them healthy and safe and making sure that they could get access to healthcare, no matter what happened, no matter what got thrown at them. We had a couple of situations arise in West Africa and I needed to travel there. So I went and visited Liberia and Guinea. I couldn't make it to Sierra Leone. And mobilising healthcare workforce into that environment was really challenging, but we really needed to do that. And so probably our biggest contribution was standing up healthcare facilities that not only underpinned the UN personnel, but provided the support that was necessary for member states and NGOs to mobilise as well. Because particularly for the member states, many of them have statutory requirements for the kind of health support that has to be available for, for teams deployed internationally. And we formed a really important part of that backbone of support. Probably the next notable one was the Syrian chemical weapons crisis, which certainly nothing in my past had really prepared me for, um, where we were in a situation and it was probably the first time that our philosophy of stay and deliver was really tested to the max, where we had for the first time UN personnel operating in a very high chemical weapons threat environment. And again, working out what do we do for them and what do we do not just for our international staff, but what do we do for the locally recruited staff? What can we do to help keep them safe? What can we teach them? What can we give them? How can we help them to maintain both their own safety and the safety of their families and their communities? So that was another really big learning curve and one that ultimately we navigated through with a lot of interagency support um, and something that I will certainly never forget. The big difference with this pandemic now is that the pandemic sort of came to the UN headquarters instead of sort of the UN going on the ground. So how was it different for you to handle this for New York City? So the New York City situation just added a layer of complexity and, and, and undercut one of the strengths of, of the team. You know, when we were managing the other crises, we had ways of working. We would all, you know, huddle in my office at the end of each day or at the beginning of each day. We'd be handing documents around and sharing information. We set up an, um, an operations room and filled it with interns. So there was a way that we had tackled some of the previous crises. And 
we were sort of ramping in a similar direction and then New York started on the trajectory that we now all know resulted in an unprecedented level of transmission. So suddenly we were faced with needing to mount a bigger scale of response because COVID is a bigger emergency than we faced in West Africa or Syria or with the Zika virus or with any of the other things that we've had. COVID is the biggest emergency that I've dealt with. But we dealt with what at first felt like one hand tied behind our backs. We've adapted just like all of the other teams in the UN have adapted. And so now I think that it's very likely that most of the colleagues in the field who are receiving support from my team are not experiencing that terribly differently to how they would be experiencing it if we were actually physically within the building. Because, you know, a, a teleconference from your home in New York is um, not that different from a teleconference from the headquarters in New York. I'm really pleased with how my team have risen to this challenge and have just been focused 110% on making sure that our colleagues in the field are supported to the nth degree. On the medical side, was there some preparedness in New York City? And, you know, I know after 9-11, after Hurricane Sandy, the UN sort of started thinking about, you know, how can the UN work without being physically there? So on the medical side, was there sort of a, a plan for a situation like this? or There was. So I approached the USG of DSS quite early on. I think it might have been late January or early February as the chair of the crisis operations group. And I asked him to convene so that we could start preparing for the eventuality of, 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 a, of a classic pandemic scenario. So um, the, the scenario that New York faced, whilst not necessarily expected, was not something that had never been contemplated in terms of pandemic scenario planning. And if, you know, I reflect back to my board certification exams in terms of the kinds of things that we used to rehearse and exam questions, it was pretty much that scenario, what can go wrong does go wrong. But that's the reason that the headquarters was actually well advanced in terms of um, planning for the eventual move to a fully distributed business model. So the crisis operations group started convening on a weekly basis quite some weeks before we finally made that call to move to the telecommuting. And in particular, the focus during that period was to re-examine the business continuity plans and make sure they were fit for purpose for what I described as a slow burn. Much business continuity after 9-11 and after Hurricane Sandy was focused on a single catastrophic event with the focus of the BCP being restoration of normal operations within a designated period, you know, 72, 36 hours. When I was briefing the COG, I was stressing that a pandemic would be a very different experience and that we needed to be sure that our business continuity could sustain for weeks, if not months. And that preparatory work that the COG drove under the leadership of the USG of DSS, I think has stood the organisation in excellent stead. And we're now seeing the resilience of the organisation as it moved to that distributed model and has now sustained it for, for quite some time. Can you tell me who else were sort of at the heart of decision making during the pandemic? Were you in touch with member states as well and everything? So that was the preparedness phase. But my work basically spanned up, down and across 
everywhere. So that I was regularly briefing my own management line, which sits in the Department of Operational Support. And one of the things that the USG of Operational Support was really very astute and was recognising the breadth of the crisis that this would take. He stated really early on, this is not only going to be a medical problem, it's going to be a supply chain problem, it's going to be a logistics problem, we're going to have um, critical supply chain failures. And he forecast that almost immediately and we were able to start moving to deal with that. So I've been working with supply chain, with logistics, also working with the SG, of course, and his senior team to make sure that they have the right information and the various decision makers there. We did a body of work in early March at the behest of the WHO crisis management team, where I've been a regular member of that group. They asked us to start working collaboratively with their team on mass gatherings to develop some consistent decision-making frames for continuation of meetings in the UN. And the first major meeting that was, in effect, a casualty of COVID was the Commission on the Status of Women. And we had to make a decision that that could not proceed in its originally intended form, that the risks to the participants, to the city, to the organisation were just too high at the point on the transmission trajectory that we were. And that was a real collaboration between entities. And then from that sparked some much deeper collaboration with the member states, in particular with the Office of the President of the General Assembly, with the President of ECOSOC. We did briefings with the member states. And so there's been a real sense of community between the Secretariat and the member states because we inhabit a common space. And it's in all of our interests to keep that space safe and keeping people well so that the business can continue. We've also been providing support to member states, to the delegations, in terms of using things that we're able to do to help them to continue their business and to manage if they, um, for example, if there was a case that they became aware of, we could help them with the risk assessment of that and work out if there was anybody needed to be notified. So there's been a real partnership with the member states and that has continued very collaboratively right up to this moment. We'll be right back. Unscripted is supported by Fordham University's Master of Science in Humanitarian Studies, an innovative program dedicated exclusively to the theory and practice of international humanitarian response. Built on social justice values and humanitarian principles, this 30-credit graduate program will prepare you with the skills you need to launch or advance your career in humanitarian action. Evening and online classes are offered at Fordham's Rose Hill Campus in the Bronx, New York, as well as at the Lincoln Center Campus, located in Midtown Manhattan. Applications for fall 2020 are being accepted on a rolling basis. For more information, visit fordham.edu slash mshs. Now back to the show. And what about the General Assembly in September? You know, this year was such an important year with the 75th anniversary of the UN and so many events have been disturbed by it. And I guess the question that's on everybody's lip is, you know, what's going to happen with the General Assembly? Now you're leaving, you know, what sort of, what are your thoughts for September when you look at the, the state New York City's in right now? 
Is it realistic? What are alternatives are on the table, you think? Well, it's actually really difficult to predict because September, in terms of an outbreak, is a long way away. I know that in terms of the way that the UN works, being mere months away is just the blink of an eye. But you look at how quickly the situation in New York deteriorated. In a matter of weeks, New York went from no cases to having some of the highest case counts in the world. So when you're dealing with an outbreak, long-distance predictions are very difficult. It will also depend on a number of factors, including the situation and the decisions that New York City make. Our approach all along has been that we want to be good and collaborative citizens of the city and of the state. And in the end, the decision will be taken by the member states and the Secretary General and his staff will work to implement it. So at this point, it's impossible really to say. And what do you think a return, return to work at the headquarters could look like in terms of social distancing? It will be slow, considered, and will be flexibly risk managed because we don't know what the risk profile of the city will be like at the point at which we make a decision to return. It's impossible for me to say line by line what will happen, but the safety and health of the staff and the delegates is the primary consideration. We have a number of key elements that need to be implemented and how and when they'll be implemented will very much depend on what the trajectory is in New York City. It is safe to say that we would not be doing anything ahead of the city. So if the city is asking workers to remain working from home, then of course we would continue to do that. And we might continue to do it for a little while after the city asks. It really depends on a risk assessment at the time. Now let's talk maybe a little bit about you and your future, because you had made a decision to leave the UN slightly before the pandemic, I believe. So can you sort of tell me what your decision process was and why you wanted to, you know, New York City is the center of diplomacy right now. It must be interesting as a doctor to be handling this pandemic. So what was your thought process in deciding to go back home? The decision process sort of started in December when I got a phone call about this job, the job that I'm going to. And at that point, the pandemic wasn't anticipated at all. So at that point, it seemed like a reasonable thing to be contemplating. And it was a very rapid recruitment process, meaning that I had a contract by early February and I gave notice to the UN in early February. And at that point as well, it was really unclear that this was going to be a true pandemic. It still looked as though it was going to be, be you know, there was hope that it would be contained. As it spread and then once New York was affected, that decision to leave weighed heavier and heavier on my heart. And I still feel very torn in terms of there's no great time to leave a job, but leaving in, in a difficult situation is never great. The Secretary General asked me if I would be prepared to stay beyond my uh, anticipated date. And subject to the agreement of my new employer, which they very graciously agreed, acknowledging that that was a reasonable ask from the SG, I was able to stick around for about six extra weeks. And that's made a difference in terms of New York is now past the peak. The planning for support to the field is now well advanced. We've managed to recruit some extra resources into my team. So I've done what I can to get things well positioned. And so that makes the leaving easier. 
in terms of the things to evaluate, well, one of the factors was that I'd been doing my job for over seven years, nearly eight years, and that's a good time to be starting to think about a new challenge. And um, the job that came up was actually fits my skills perfectly. It's in an organisation that I deeply respect, and it's in my hometown, the town that I was recruited from um, when the UN recruited me. So it was not an opportunity to be dismissed lightly, and I decided to proceed with it. I'm confident that I will miss New York. I'm already finding an, an overwhelming urge to binge watch television series that are filmed in New York, just so I can get my fix of the skyline regularly. What series are you watching? What have I been watching? Um, the latest one has been Suits, which very nicely captures the, you know, the, the pace and the vibe in some regards. It does, it is, it is true. So the UN is recruiting right now. What would you say, what skills do you think is, are the most important for this job? I think that it is above all a medical leadership job. So it's not um, necessarily a job where we'd want to recruit the best clinician because the best clinician, the best, most talented, you know, brain surgeon in the world might not be the best medical leader. And it needs somebody who understands systems and understands leading people and is comfortable with ambiguity and complexity. And those are things that you can find in the medical workforce. So um, I'm optimistic that with the right outreach, there'll be someone who will thrive in the role to the extent or more than I have. Um, the recruitment process is underway and um, I'm hopeful that the right people will see that job advertisement and will take the necessary steps. And whoever the new director is, I wish them very well. Great. Well, thank you so much. We wish you the best of success uh, in your new role and enjoy also your hometown. <laughs> thank you very much, Stephanie. Much appreciated. This episode was produced by me, Casey Candela, with help from Leontine Gallois and reported by Stephanie Filion for Pass Blue, an independent women-led media site covering the United Nations and global affairs. Dulce Leimbach is our editor, AI Digital created our podcast logo, and our music is by Poddington Bear. A lot happens at the UN beyond what we report in each episode of Unscripted, and Pass Blue is covering the important news from women's rights to human rights to the Trump effect on the UN. For day-to-day -day coverage, follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And to subscribe to our newsletter, go to passblue.com. Pass Blue's in-depth and exclusive stories and this podcast are possible with the support of the Carnegie Corporation of New York, the New School, and listeners like you. To show your support, visit Pass Blue's website and click Donate. Unscripted is available wherever you find podcasts. If you like today's show, please rate us on iTunes and share with all your friends.